Did you know we can use artificial intelligence to grow significantly more food? And these methods are also much better for the environment. I'm Daniel Hartz, and this is the Sustainability Champions Podcast, where we highlight the people, ideas, and innovations that are protecting and healing the planet. Today, I'm joined by Ingo Mueller, CEO of AgriForce Growing Systems. AgriForce has designed a cutting-edge facility and automated growing system that can grow more food in a way that's environmentally friendly. With their tech, people can grow high-value crops in pretty much any weather condition. So this sounds very interesting and like a game changer for agriculture. Thank you very much for joining me, Inga. Thanks, Daniel. And where, where are you taking the call from? I'm in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Very nice. Um, so today I'd like to really discuss three primary topics. Number one is the challenges that we as humans face with our food security and food industry in general. Uh, from there, uh, the technology that you and the team at AgriForce have created to meet these needs and to ensure that we can actually eat moving forward into the future. And then finally, how you actually got started with AgriForce because your background is uh, a bit different. So it'd be interesting to hear that story. Uh, so first things first, just to give a bit of context, can you pre briefly describe what AgriForce does? Um, AgriForce is an agricultural technology company focused on solutions uh, really designed to address the shortcoming of legacy egg. As we like to say, we're the fourth way of growing, uh, the clean, green, pure company. Uh, and we believe the only one in the world that has really evolved um, controlled environment solutions for the next level. Great. And so you mentioned this clean, green, pure, and if you go onto your website, it, you, you write about that quite a lot. What exactly does clean, green, and pure actually mean? What it really means in the simplest sense is we've tried to create a solution that is more sustainable by its very nature in terms of its consumption of energy uh, and resources. Um, and in doing so, we've also created what we call uh, the equivalent of the biosphere, something that's completely sealed um, to, a, to a level of almost pharma grade, um, which really keeps pathogens um, outside of the facility and keeps it entirely clean. So we avoid the use of pesticides and other forms of pest control um, to ensure that whatever it is we're growing um, is in its most natural uh, genetic state. Wow. And what, what kind of stuff do you grow? Well, we focused uh, primarily on three verticals, uh, hydroponics, uh, nutraceuticals, and uh, plant-based pharmaceuticals. And then in conjunction with that, of course, foods. Wow. Um, the first thing I'm, I'm thinking when you say that, like, it's a completely controlled environment and you're... Um, you're able to keep all pathogens out is um, I picture basically a big bubble for some reason. Um, and everyone inside the bubble is wearing basically like astronaut suits. Am I close at all? Uh, somewhat. Um, I'd say anecdotally, sure. But cool. um, really in, in simplest terms, you use positive pressure and you use filtration systems. No facility can operate without oxygen, air, CO2. Um, so it's how you actually uh, create an environment that doesn't allow um, outside contaminants into the facility. And there's a series of protocols and design elements that actually allow you to accomplish that. Hmm. 
So at a simple level, um, when you think about traditional agriculture and greenhouse solutions, by and large, not all, but most, um, vent to control temperature because by the very nature of the solar gain increases humidity and temperature inside the facility. And they don't have the sophisticated uh, climate control systems. Uh, again, we're speaking about the majority. And so they have to let air into the facility. And when they do that, you have the microorganisms, contaminants that enter the facility. A second critical element is human interaction. Uh, employees who are out in the fields or in the immediate vicinity and area are attracting various contaminants into their hair or onto their clothing. And they bring those into the facility. Um, and that then forces um, the facilities to deal with some of these issues. So it's about creating, like I said, a series of protocols um, and a facility design that actually mitigates that risk. You're never going to be 100% perfect, um, but certainly it, it substantially uh, eliminates the need to, to utilize any uh, controls. Wow. That's really cool. How, how did you how did you get into this? Because, uh, as you were saying before we started recording, you you were mostly in finance. Well, my background is finance, um, and uh, you know the benefit of, of that is I've been exposed to uh, a multitude of industries and, and sectors. I'm a bit of a unique breed in that in my capacity um, in, in call it financial consulting, investment banking. Uh, I've evolved into a C-suite executive where often I'm brought into companies um, to lead, um, design strategy, build teams. And really the fundamental elements of that exercise uh, are the same across a multitude of sectors. So I've been in diverse things like industrial applications and petrochemicals um, involved in mining, um, involved in entertainment, um, uh, life settlements. I mean, uh, virtually anything. But I would, I would say as, as uniquely different as they are, they do have commonalities in how you build an organization and how you identify perspective um, to try to figure out how to do something better. And in this particular case, um, I had been, um, I don't want to say courted, uh, but certainly I had been asked to be involved uh, with two entrepreneurs who really looked at agriculture and credit to them. They, they realized there was something badly broken hmm. and they wanted to figure out a better, smarter way to address urban farming opportunities, find a way to bring foods closer to the populace, so to speak. Um, as many people know, uh, the supply chain is designed to be efficient. And so uh, that by its very nature uh, forces centralization where crops are brought from great distances into centralized wholesale uh, facilities and then distributed out to retail. Um, so efficient at scale, but unfortunately what's compromised in that is our planet uh, by virtue of where and how things are grown. And then of course the cost uh, the fossil fuel cost of moving those materials around. So they knew and identified that, that this was an issue, you know, eight years ago. And they were trying to figure out better, smarter ways to, to attack uh, the problem. 
Um, so during that time, they, they kept me sort of informed of their journey. Um, I was quite busy uh, myself with other endeavors and, and uh, kind of listened along, not really fully understanding the magnitude of the problem. Um, but along the way, a few years ago, um, they came to me and, and said, look, we think we've knocked this on the head. We think we have a solution. Can you take a look at it? Um, and can you help us? And so I took a, a look at it. I put it in front of an engineer that I knew. And the engineer said, wow, this is really interesting. Um, I think you should really explore this. So at that point in time, I took it to some investment banking contacts of mine. And I said, look, here, here's what we think we have. Would you be interested in supporting the company and raising some money? And they looked at them, they looked at me, and they said, yes, under one condition. I said, what's the condition? That you become CEO. <laughs> so that is how I ended up in, in ag tech. Um, what we discovered after that was that is innovative uh, thought processes that they had applied to the so-called IP, they fell woefully short in terms of actual IP. Uh, it was really more concept than reality. Mm. Um, my background, like I said, I've done a lot of different things. A couple of those have been actually uh, implementing new tech um, into industrial applications, one in petrochemicals, one in coke fuel or the making of steel. And so I you know, understand what it takes to not only develop and refine IP, but actually execute. Um, and so we had to set about really figuring out these concepts and turning them into an actual uh, defined IP and solution, which we've done over the last few years. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, it's very cool way to, to start. And, um, I would say probably a very, um, uh, I mean, it must be nice, you know, it must feel really good and, and like clearly, uh, validating of your skill set if um, uh, in, an investor says we want you to lead the company and that's why we're uh, that's why we want to invest there's uh, a lot of pressure in that but <laughs> that's true too yeah it's kind of bo goes both ways <laughs> but you know I think at, at the end of the day it, it always comes down to um, uh, trying to trying to eliminate any biases and I think in this particular industry the benefit is I didn't have any legacy biases mm -hmm. and I was able to go and, and speak to experts uh, and professionals and sought out actually a team of people who sat outside of the egg industry initially, uh, complemented that with people with that expertise, of course, but it really allowed us to change the way that we looked at things and apply things we've learned uh, from other sectors and industries to change um, what people accepted as the norm. Yeah. Um, and given the magnitude of the problem, um, you know, people are creatures of, of, of habit. Um, people are creatures of, of really staying the norm unless they're forced into a situation of change. I mean, COVID's a perfect example of that. Even then you see the resistance. Mm -hmm. So um, if it isn't broken, why fix it? Well, I think 
you know, mankind's attitude has to change. Uh, we've seen that with COVID. I mean, uh, there was ample warning about pandemics and risk of pandemics. Bill Gates has been talking about it for a decade. Um, yet uh, nobody took heed and nobody prepared. And now we're dealing with the consequences. So I think having that different perspective, not getting caught up in those legacy systems and accepting them um, allowed us to break the chain, so to speak. And even marginal improvements make a tremendous potential difference. Yeah. And, and undoubtedly, that sets the stage for more innovation and change. Tesla has done it with automobiles. Amazon has done it with distribution. Um, there's lots of examples of, of companies taking tremendous risk and applying um, new learnings to, to industry. Um, and we hope to do the same. Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, with the, um, the, the, those two companies you mentioned, Tesla and Amazon, these are huge, uh, markets. And I mean, food, I would probably imagine is one of the biggest markets in the world because everyone has to eat. Uh, and so, like you said, you know, marginal change in the way that food is produced or the way it's delivered. Uh, it, it The chain reaction based on that is the ripple, ripple effect is massive because even a 1% shift in the way that food is created, I mean, since everyone is eating, it's not a nice to have. Um, yeah, it's it's a huge a huge change. Um, you, you mentioned that the founders. Um, first of all, I, I just think it's really interesting. I've never heard of farming practices called legacy agriculture. Um, I think it's a really cool term, and it kind of it's probably what you're what you do all the time, which is looking at agriculture in a completely different way by using the word legacy. It kind of makes me think of legacy technology. Um, which it technically is, uh, it just um, kind of just shines a light on it in a different way that I've never considered. Um, you, and you mentioned that their that the founders originally one of their kind of issues that they were looking to fix was uh, the fact that farming is very far away, or at least that's that's what I interpreted based on what you said because they were looking to bring it uh, to or to do urban farming. Um, so I'd, I'd like to just hear some uh, some of the other challenges that they saw that really inspired them to start um, this quest on creating this technology that you ultimately uh, refined and brought or bringing to market. So what, what were some of those? Well, uh, I, I think there's a, a multitude of, of different elements that come into play when you look at figuring out how to do things better. Um, but let, let's talk just about sort of a few of them that I mm -hmm. think um, are meaningful. Um, you know, the broadest sense, field farming um, is really driven uh, by trying to optimize the yield uh, of plants um, and, and make them suitable for the distribution or supply chain model that exists. The consequence of that, unfortunately, is you've got food that doesn't taste very good and isn't very fresh. Um, you know, it's picked well before it's ripe. Uh, to allow or to, to mitigate spoilage and make sure that it gets to the shelves and is consumable. Um, that's inherently a problem. Hmm. Um, and so just the simple fact of being able to move it closer to the consumer and bring it directly to the consumer um, is infinitely more attractive 
uh, both from a consumer taste and preference perspective, but also from a sustainability perspective. You're not moving things unnecessarily through a supply chain so that you're driving costs down and you're creating so-called efficiencies of, of big ag. The other thing is big ag is focused on creating aesthetics um, that are appealing. So you deal with genetics and you deal with modification. You've, everybody's heard the horror stories of Monsanto and, and what they've done and, and how vigorously they protect the genetics. Now, th that's perhaps a negative. Um, there's also positives in, in genetics, but the genetics have been designed to mitigate um, uh, the impact of pathogens and pests, etc. Um, but also to ensure that that tomato or what have you stays um, uh, edible <laughs> for a longer period of time. Uh, the knock-on of all of that is it's not what it was designed or created to be. And, and so we look at it and say, okay, how can you actually create something that allows that plant to achieve its genetic potential without actually playing with it, without doing things to it that, you know, if, if consumers really knew and understood, uh, they might not be so inclined. Kind of like um, uh, how are seedless watermelons born? Well, that's exactly, that's all breeding and, and genetics. Um, but um, so when you look at field agriculture, um, you're looking at uh, massive areas. Um, and, and now in, in the context of, of what egg is trying to do, they're trying to make that more efficient. They're trying to grow more on less area. But the mm -hmm. fact remains that you're in an uncontrolled environment and you cannot control the factors that influence the way a crop performs other than through genetics. So but when you're as saying, they are, sorry, just to, to clarify that when you're saying uncontrolled environment, you're referring to things like how much sun or rain. Yeah. Mother nature, you know, things you can't control. Um, so they're spraying pesticides on these crops, fertilizing these crops. And, and where do those end up? They end up in our water table. Mm -hmm. uh, if anybody understands anything about water tables, they understand that they are the source of the majority of our water. Certainly in the United States, if you look at California, Arizona, oh, yes, some come from the rivers, some come from other water sources, but predominantly it's underground water tables. Those get contaminated. With it's the same, yeah, it's the same as the difference between organic and non-organic. And most consumers naively believe, oh, it's organic, therefore it's not sprayed. Yeah. It's, it's as close to nature as possible. Well, what they need to consider is the fact that much of agriculture is controlled by you know, half a dozen major corporations, for example. Uh, or they are supplying or obtaining the supply through mega farms. And those farms are all located in an area, in a centralized area because of climate typically mm -hmm. and expertise. And so those organic fields are right beside the non-organic fields that are getting sprayed. And it's been proven that pesticides will travel up to 20 kilometers wow. in the air. So those organic 
strawberries or what have you, are probably not what the consumer thinks they're getting. Yeah, I remember also hearing in a di- like in addition to that, um, uh, the genetically modified um, seeds or like you know the pollen from genetically modified um, plants are also being you know when the wind blows it just carries it over Same. into the organic yeah. field that's a mile down the the road. And, There's uh, lots of examples um, of that, Daniel, and in that sort of evolves to the next solution. So what did mankind do? Well, the Dutch were very smart and they figured, hey, we can create greenhouses. Mm -hmm. And what were greenhouses meant to do? To provide a more controlled environment for plants to thrive. Okay. And to try to utilize solar gain to allow you to grow in months where you might otherwise not grow. But with those designs, also came other challenges. And that then has evolved to the implementation of technology to try to figure out how to improve that. So tech is being applied to what we call legacy systems, just traditional ways of doing things. And instead of fixing the fundamental issue and disrupting it, people go, okay, how do we work with this? We accept this is what works. How do we make this better? So people are throwing, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars at different tech solutions, AI, IoT, you know, so on and so forth, to try to figure out how to do it. But what they're missing is the fact that the plants aren't able to achieve their full genetic potential. That's what really drives, the environment is what drives a plant's ability to achieve its potential. The marginal gains through technology that we're talking about that are being you know, evolved as we speak represent maybe 10 or 20% of the potential benefit. So we said, look, that, that's wrong. We have to address the environment first and figure out smarter ways to do things that change what we know and figure out how to do that. So the next iteration that ag tech evolved was indoor growing. And what did they do? They said, hey, we have buildings, we have warehouses, let's use the warehouses. Because guess what? We can have those closer to the, the, the customer. They exist, the infrastructure is there. Let's just put artificial light in there and systems that allow us to grow high density and provide that to consumers. And guess what? With a sealed building, there are no contaminants and we can use less water. And, and that's the current state. Now, the industry hasn't quite figured out yet how to make that economically. It's getting there, or economic, it's getting there, but not quite. But it's still fundamentally flawed. You are trying to control an environment that is a square box. It's not properly insulated, okay? It doesn't have any natural light, and it's fundamentally suboptimal. You can't create air movement, which is critical, you don't have natural sunlight. Yes, you're using artificial light, but artificial light is not Mother Nature. Those plants did not evolve and optimize around artificial light, right? And no matter what anybody will tell you or might tell you from the light sciences side, artificial light will never replicate the power of the sun. So again, you're, you're dealing with inherent issues 
which you can't engineer away. Can you improve it? Absolutely. But you're not fundamentally addressing the issue. And so for us, and, and the original conceptualizers, it was, okay, how do you turn that on its head? Who says you have to grow in a box? Who says that growing under glass or plastic is the best thing for a plant? And when we looked at the issue and we talked to the experts, and we started to understand, we said, look, there's existing materials from other industries, there's existing know-how from other industries that can be adapted and changed to actually work for a new application or a new way of doing things. And in that context, we said, let's disrupt this. Let's turn this on its head and figure out a better, smarter way to do it. The net result is we use less energy, we use less water in a clean environment. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. But it certainly is much better than legacy systems. The issue then becomes economics. And how do you introduce technology and still make it viable? Because unfortunately, the Western world uh, is used to low-cost products, low-cost food. Um, and that paradigm has to change. And I think consumers are starting to understand and are willing to pay a little bit more for something that tastes better and they know is about as natural as can be and is local to them. So that's what we've really tried to focus on. Yeah, well, that's, I think you really painted the picture well there because, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, you're, you're demonstrating, first of all, the, uh, the progression. What I've never really considered is just how much the environment actually plays a role um, in in the way that a a plant grows, and obviously, um, when you're looking to optimize anything, you want to focus on kind of quote unquote the one thing that where's your biggest lever basically that will give you when you press on that lever that will give you the most change. Um, an environment is clearly that uh, that lever. Uh, what I'm at this point dying to know because you've you've uh, mentioned all the problems of these previous uh, technologies. Uh, how does Agriforce do it differently? What exactly? I mean, to you know, to the degree that you can talk about it, what exactly do you do that actually um, uh, ensures that the environment is optimal, while also not getting in in the way? And um, you know, you, you mentioned at the beginning that uh, you're, you're essentially growing it in some sort of building, I believe, because it's a controlled environment. So I can't imagine it's outdoors. Um, so can you paint a picture for uh, just of what it actually, what it looks like and how, how you're sure. controlling? Sure, be, be happy to. Yeah. Um, one thing I do want to mention, Daniel, which I think is somewhat relevant to uh, the perspective I'm trying to give, is when you, when you look at the way that industry evolves, Often change uh, agents are, are entrepreneurs and people who don't necessarily reside in that space. You know, you look at Elon yeah. Musk, you, you know, Jeff Bezos. These are people who didn't have a specific expertise in the area that they said about disruptive. They were entrepreneurs, visionaries who said, why is it so? 
and, and figured out better, smarter ways to do things. And so that, unfortunately, in many instances, perpetrates the system itself of, of get, accessing the capital to pursue these opportunities are driven by entrepreneurs. And, and most entrepreneurs uh, either don't have the training, don't have the perspective or, or view of challenging the norm. You know, if an expert tells them this is the way it must be, yeah. guess what? Nine out of 10 times you're going to accept it. And that should never be the case. You know, if, if you want to be effective, you need to challenge those assumptions. And so when you look at sort of the iteration of urban farming as it sits today, um, a lot of it is companies who are accepting the norm. They're accepting the offerings um, and not looking for better, more sustainable ways to do things. And, and that's all in the rush to monetize and take advantage of the narrative that's out there. And, and so, um, so I think that's a fundamental issue people need to keep in mind too. Of why doesn't this happen? Why doesn't this change really happen the way it should happen yeah. as expeditiously as it should? I, so yeah. back, back to your question. So, uh, yeah, but I just, just, unless you want to comment on that. I, I do just because you're, you're absolutely right. I think, um, uh, the number of times you hear people saying like, well, it, it's always been this way. So how can you possibly, you know, as soon as someone mentions a radical idea instantaneously, everyone says, oh, well, that can't work. And um, yeah, there's, uh, that's because that, you know, they, you, in order to change, uh, fundamentally change and, and to disrupt something, you have to look at it from a completely different point of view. You won't be able to, uh, What's I think it's an Einstein quote, and where he said, uh, you know, if we continue to look at problems, uh, do you know? Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm, I'm totally butchering, and I can't remember. Unfortunately, he, I don't. But he yeah. he basically says something along the lines of like, you know, you're not going to be able to find a solution if you're thinking about, if you're using the same thinking that created the problem. Um, you you need to really get out of that thinking and basically think about it completely differently, and that's the benefit of which is what you did uh, at the beginning is bringing together people who are not really related to the industry. It's obviously helpful to have people who have some background or have a complete background who are willing to approach the problem differently. Um, I think it is important to bring in people who have nothing to do with it or very little to do with it. And they say, you just pose the, the question, you know, how do we do X, Y, Z? And they start thinking about it from an, a space engineering point of view or you know coming at it in that coming into it from some other type of engineering that has nothing to do with agriculture and all of a sudden you get some really exciting ideas that are uh totally different and nothing to do with um with the way a farmer would approach planting seeds into the ground exactly i think that's exactly. awesome yeah so i'll touch on a, a few points yeah, because please. i i think we have limited time and, and it would take you know an awful long time to get into all the nuances but you know, at, at, at the simplest level, um, you look at a facility, you look at a facility design, okay? That's call it the four walls um, uh, of the building. And as I said before, uh, traditionally, you, you have greenhouses mm -hmm. and you have warehouses. Um, and when you consider those elements, even at the simplest level, uh, one uh, being a greenhouse, you look at it and you go, okay, what, what a greenhouse, or what are the materials that they use? And the answer to that is they use either 
glass or plastic. And many people know, but many people don't know that glass doesn't allow the full light spectrum through it. There's a reason when you're in your car, you don't get burned, right? The UV doesn't pass through. But many people also don't know that the UV is essential to plant robustness. The plant produces certain things that are like a sunscreen, right? It re they react to the UV. And so through that interaction, you're getting a much ro more robust plant. Okay? And so in the context of that, of course, affects flavor, color, size, etc. So if you're not allowing the UV, and you're not allowing the full light spectrum of the reds and blues into the facility, what are you really doing? You're sub-optimizing the environment. A warehouse is even worse. There's absolutely nothing. Yeah, it's fake Now, people light. will say, hey, lighting. Lighting can solve that problem. It can partially solve the problem. We know plants grow in suboptimal conditions, but it doesn't address the full genetic potential. So we said, okay, what exists? Well, what can we create that actually gives the plants naturally the best chance of reaching your genetic material? So we have a proprietary uh, cladding system which actually allows virtually the full light spectrum through it, including UV. Okay. So that's a game changer. Just a simple little thing like that. Now, it's a very challenging material to work with for construction purposes. So what did we do? We went out, and there's maybe half a dozen companies in the world that actually know how to work with this type of material. It's very thin. Um, and, and we partnered with them. They actually in, ended up investing in us. Um, and so that, that is a very simple example of, of one element. The second thing uh, we said is, okay, it's all about efficiency, right? At the end of the day, you still have to reduce costs. Right. What are some of the inherent challenges of a warehouse and a greenhouse from a simple functionality perspective? And if you go into a greenhouse or you go into a warehouse every six to 12 feet, you have pillars, right? Well, those pillars, when you add them all up, have a meaningful impact on workflow and yield. They take space. Yeah, so we said, of that. yeah, so we said, can we build a building that doesn't have that? Because it makes it a more efficient building. So we did. Then you take that another step further and you say, okay, what are the problems with the legacy greenhouse, legacy warehouse design? Well, a big problem is circulation, okay? How do you manage circulation? And circulation is the movement of air, but what it's really doing is it's dealing with temperature and humidity, okay? In a square building, it's pretty easy to understand that you have corners. And in those corners, it's virtually impossible to move air. So what happens? Moisture builds up. And guess what happens with moisture? You get molds and mildews. And it's an inherent problem in indoor cultivation. 
it's a problem in greenhouses because you have the peaks and the air gets trapped and the moisture right. gets trapped. It's the same issue. It's why they have to vent. But when you vent, you allow things in. <laughs> so we said, look, there's got it. Who says a building has to be a square or right. who says a building has to have all these peaks, right? So we created a facility design and an air management system that actually creates an environment like on the planet where we create natural convection. And that simple fact means we don't need to use fans. Fans are actually, if you talk to growers, are the bane of problems because if you have an airborne spore and you got a bunch of fans blowing it everywhere, guess what? <laughs> you have a big problem quickly. Yeah. So our building doesn't do that. It actually creates hot and cold like the planet and moves the air around naturally. It means we don't have to use as much energy to create the ideal condition. It's a little thing, but a very meaningful thing. And then what we said is, okay, what else, when you look at a facility design, impacts efficiency, you know, impacts the use of energy? Well, a, a real simple one is lighting. Mm -hmm. And another simple one is temperature and humidity control. Now, those are two beasts and big, big problems. You know? and, and so what has the industry done? It's, it's moved towards LED lighting as a means of, of sort of managing that. But what we did, using that as an example, uh, we said, look, who says that this agricultural lighting is actually best in class and, and the most efficient? So we went to the top lighting design consultancy, arguably in the world, whose background, funny enough, was entertainment hmm. and um, mass consumer environments, so airports, convention centers. And what we learned was that architectural lighting uh, is way more advanced than horticultural lighting, that those facilities can actually change biorhythms in human beings to create certain experiences. Makes sense. And so we then went and looked at 200 different agricultural fixtures um, from different types of lighting, HPS, LED, et cetera, and said, okay, let's create a baseline of what we're looking for. We worked with a NASA-based scientist who actually was responsible for growing food in space and said, okay, let's look at these 200 and let's figure out which one at the minimum meets our baseline. And the baseline meant from a physical standpoint could deliver the framework of what we wanted to evolve the way that light worked. And we found three out of 200 hit the baseline. The view was at the end of that exercise that the absolute vast majority of lighting fixtures are 10 year old know-how. It's the lighting companies repurposed old tech to push it into the ag sector. So all those facilities out there right now are using suboptimal lights. And most of them don't have the budgets nor inclination to rip them out and get better ones. There's very few who can do that, right? So now you've got a 10 or 15 year lifespan of legacy technology that's not optimized and not efficient.
And so we've designed something that didn't say, okay, it's got to be on all the time, or it's got to be on eight hours or 12 hours and then off. It actually adjusts with what's going on outside and what's happening in the facility. It's measuring, and that's where we're using artificial intelligence and sensors to dial it in. So we're never using too much. We're giving the plants exactly what they need at any given point in time. So that's critical. You know, there's another efficiency. Not only does it help the plants, because although the sun is the perfect source of light, there are times when there's storms, there's clouds, so on and so forth. So you can complement and supplement, okay? But not to the point where it's inefficient. So that's another example. From a temperature control and humidity perspective, you look at a greenhouse and you have glass in its and plastic have almost no insulation value, I mean, almost nothing. And in a warehouse, it's the same thing. So what are you doing? You're using energy, consuming energy to try to create an environment at any given point in time that's better, right? That's dialed into the, the crop you're growing. So we said, is there a smarter, better way to design our building to actually create insulation without consuming huge amounts of power? And so what we figured out was we could design a building that had a cavity of space that we could inject with water-soluble foam that could actually create insulation value of up to R30, which is more than a commercial building or house. And we can actually dial that up or dial it down depending on the conditions. So those are some of the elements um, of just thinking outside the box wow. and applying you know, technology. So for example, the phone technology is actually firefighting technology <laughs> uh, that we applied to use because there have been people small scale who had effectively demonstrated that you could actually create insulation values around this. So, uh, so those are elements of how you think outside the box, how you apply technology to do things better and smarter. Yeah, that's really cool. And now I understand why, um, why, why you say that this technology allows you to grow high value crops in pretty much any weather condition, because essentially what it sounds like you're doing is, um, well, there's a, a few basics that you would always keep in mind, like avoiding corners clearly in terms of the way you design the building. Uh, and also the, um, the, uh, the ensuring that the, the heat and cooling is done in a natural way. Uh, the lighting clearly and this, um, this foam means that if it's a very hot space with a lot of sun, then uh, it adapts to that. Um, and you, you know how much uh, insulation to put in in order to keep it cool enough. And also the lighting you'll probably be usually quite low. Or if it's in a very cold dark place and you know like north of norway or in the north of canada or something then uh you just dial it up so that it exactly. you're always creating those yeah and and each location dictates how the technology works with right or how the various components work with each other so you're always dialing in and that's where the ai gets starts to work and, and starts to adjust 
based upon that environment and other patterns. You can't, you know, just take a facility, plunk it down and hope it works. Right. There can't do cookie cutter. No. Um, we designed the construction and the way that we do these to be modular and scalable. So that was one of the things we wanted to make sure we could do. Right. So as you build one, you could build 10, you know, beside each, uh, each other. And so it all depends on the purpose, the use and the purpose of, of what it is you do or what you're looking to do. So, yeah. so that's why we call it the fourth way, um, something very different, unique um, to what, what we call legacy A represents. Yeah, that's, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And so these can be built in cities or close to cities. Correct. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, from the point of view of, uh, going back to that original point you were saying about picking things way before they're ripe, et cetera. Um, I mean, with this kind of technology, in theory, you could pick them the day that they'll be consumed. It's designed to harvest daily, to bring to market daily. So, of course, every crop is a little bit different. Um, so it, it depends. Uh, and we're still working through all the various applications um, and, and crop potential. Um, and the design in the building around the automation is all dictated by the crop itself. Um, but there's a lot of similarities between, you know, different, different crops. So um, it all depends. But, but notionally, the same principles apply. Hmm. In, uh, and I'm, I'm conscious of time here. I'm just really curious, based on what you just mentioned, is um, can't, does one building focus on one crop or you can have multiple different crops in one building? Um, you technically could have multiple crops, albeit uh, we design the buildings to be crop specific. I understand. Uh, at this stage, um, you know, we're still early um, in, in the evolution of the technology and, and we're going to get smarter. We're going to get better. We're going yeah. to challenge ourselves every step of the way to figure out how to do it more efficiently less impactfully um, and create the best tasting uh, product we can uh, and healthiest product we can. Yeah. Um, so um, it'll be interesting to see where we get to in the next five years, but we have, we have great aspirations. So well, I'm looking forward to, it. I mean, it sounds like you have a very strong start and um, I think it's um, the technology that you're talking about is clearly uh, revolutionary. And I think this is a disruptive technology to a legacy technology, legacy agriculture. Uh, for anyone who's listening, I mean, personally, I'm, I'm extremely curious to know how I can actually support you. And I'm sure there are others who are listening to this who are interested. You know, is there anything that they can do at this point um, to actually support AgriForce and either, uh, you know, how, what can we do for the people who want to um, uh, make life a little bit easier for you? Um, I, I think just follow us on social media. Um, you know, stay go to tuned. our website um, and, and don't accept the norm. You know, don't accept the norm. Uh, the, the tech know-how uh, expertise exists to give consumers more environmentally friendly, good tasting food. Um, and, and I think, you know, if, of course, we understand that not everybody is privileged and can afford um, what we're accustomed to when we look at other parts of the world. 
Um, our job is to try to figure out how we do these things more cost effectively. So it becomes ubiquitous across all consumer levels. Um, that's not something that exists today, but it's something we want to work towards. Um, there will be other solutions for, for other applications, you know, mm -hmm. cheaper alternatives of, as technology um, evolves. But we have to challenge ourselves and we have to think about the impact our behavior is having on the planet and on the population. And when you just look at the, the basics of, of what we talked about early on, um, that's a scary proposition. We, you know, we're going to be, you know, as a population, over 10 billion people by 2050. Yeah. Um, they are all concentrated in urban centers. Those urban centers are expanding. Terrible land through climate change is disappearing. We have to figure out a better, smarter way to do it. Or we're going to be faced with the same issues we faced with this pandemic. Um, and, and we've seen what this alone, this pandemic has done to supply chain um, disruption, um, et cetera. And hopefully this time we learn some things and we actually act on them. Certainly we're trying to, um, and I challenge everybody else to do the same. Yeah, I think it's a it's a great point and a and a great challenge. And uh, for people who are interested in following you or checking out your website, where's the best place for them to go and and learn more and read about your technology? Uh, the website is www.agroforcegs.com. Great, and we'll we'll have that link in the in the show notes as well for people who want to see it. It's a it's a really cool website with a, with a lot of uh, a lot of information that you can you can see. So, um, Ingo, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Love the work you're doing, and I think, like you said, let's see where you get to in five years. I think you'll be uh, revolutionizing the way food is produced and and distributed. Thank you very much. Thanks, Daniel. My pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, give us a five star rating. And also, please subscribe, whether on your podcast app or on YouTube. And that way you can be the first to know about new episodes. Thank you very much and talk to you soon.